Wolfer by Pepper Shark. Chapter One. Folks been calling him the McNee Wolf. The marshal down in Bishop Creek put $200 on his shaggy gray head, cash money. Now, back in Kansas City, $200 was more like pocket change for young Tom. But this ain't Missouri no more. His daddy was stone dead. Tom slid his belly open with a buck knife and watched his warm, wet coils spill out onto the Turkish carpet, his cut glass crystal rolling across the newly lacquered dance floor, his mouth hinged open in grotesque surprise like a Judy doll. No debutantes danced on that floor that Saturday or any after, no sir. When people tear apart, they sound like silk ripping, but wetter. Tom knows that. He clutches the tapered wood handle of his browning, wading knee-deep through the fresh powder as he creeps to the edge of the draw. His breath plumes in the sharp, lung-piercing air. The mountain's frozen blanket covers the rocky terrain. It stacks prettily on the pine bows like a penny sugar loaf, but it makes the going damn slow. Dawn hums around his ears like the moment before a string quartet plucks up a song. Inside his wool cavalry coat, the hairs of his arms stand up, expectant, ready for anything. His boots crunch up to the edge of the canyon where below, the faintest trickle of a moving creek warbles from under the snow. The McNee wolf is young, the marshal said, but he's a wily son of a bitch, prone to tearing out heifer's throats he don't mean to feed on killing just for the hell of it. Tom knows something about that, too. The snow-dusted brush shakes, and Tom snaps his clear gaze toward it. Against the jagged hillside, the bushes shudder again in clumps of white slush patter to the ground. His trap's gone off. And whatever's caught in his steel, it's big. Tom crouches, the snow creaking under him. He slides on his belly, easing himself into the ledge below holding up the browning to keep the powder dry. He'd unswapped his fine sack tweed and gold pocket watch for calico, leather gaiters, and an old military coat with the Rangan markers ripped off. Suits him better this way. In California, a man can leave behind his old name. Tom left his daddy's bankrupt estate in a trail of about 20 corpses diced up like a Sunday ham, but he ain't crying. Ain't nobody crying over his daddy, nor Marbolo, Morphin, and Corvin is gone about as innocent as copperheads, the lot of them, and as ugly, too. Buy you trash, no matter what their bank statement said. Anybody ask Tom's name, he tells them riddle. He's got a paper in his pocket, tucked up against a bottle of strychnine. By order of Lieutenant Severus Snape, Deputy Marshal of Bishop Creek, a Mr. Tom Marvolo Riddle be hereby issued rights to trap, capture, poison, shoot, or otherwise exterminate wolves on the lands belonging to citizens of the Owens Valley and Eastern Sierra Wilderness. Quick as a flash, Tom brings the butt of his rifle to his shoulder, his breath gripped in his lungs like a fist. He stares down that smooth bore, heart pounding, the thrill of death zipping down his spine. The manzanita shivers, and a curtain of snow falls away. A ghostly form whizzes from the brush. Crack! The browning sings. Blame it to goddamn Jesse. Lucky bastard got away. But a few bloomin' red calling cards among the wolf's tracks tells Tom he's got another dance coming up. Soon. He hastens along the trail, following the snap branches and massive prints, listening in that great big emptiness. It's the quiet Tom likes.
The McNee wolf leads him down into the tree line, where the sugar pans drip with thick, slushy clumps. Golden light dapples through the needle rafters. A fat dollop of ice plops onto the brim of his black wool hat. Tom slows, looking all around. If it were him, gushing red onto the snow, he'd draw his pursuer into a shady glen where he could... Fuck! The shadow leaps out of nowhere, bowling Tom into an embankment. Snapping jaws ripped into the lapel of his coat, gnawing the butt off his gun like bone. Tom thrashes. Lone wolves rarely have a mind to attack a human, but between the steel trap and Tom's bullet, young McNee been stirred into a powerful frenzy, snarling, shredding. Claws find the collar of his coat and his skin tears, hot blood stinging. Adrenaline roars in his temples. Tom lashes back with his weapon, shoving the gray demon and his skull-crushing bite back far enough to rip out his buck knife. The beast has no strategy now. It lunges, leveraging his weight against him, but Tom brings a knife into his side. The tip bounces off a rib first, but he slams again and again, plunging into the creature's innards like popping balloons through a birdcage. The give of raw viscera. The give of raw viscera always astounds Tom. The sticky heat of life gumming around his fingers. So elegant. The wolf goes limp. Tom pushes McNee off of him, bursts in with deep, exultant breaths. He stands, touching his face. A few scratches and one hell of a cock stand. Not bad. He spits into the snow, his blood churning with piss and vinegar. His hat rolled a few paces away and he scoops it up, settling it on his head with a tug of the brim. The wolf's skin peels back from its flesh like a wet sock. Tom trims the hide, marveling at the pillars of muscle and membrane of viscera steaming off in the frigid air. A body's just like one of them trains or newfangled locomotives. Take one soft, wriggling piece out and the whole damn thing just grinds to a halt. Incredible. Over the course of the morning, Tom smokes and salts the hide, readying it for his bounty claim and the sale of a fine-looking pelt. Two hundred dollars. Lord. The McNee wolf has become a flat, two-dimensional version of himself, with his legs spread out and his face only two ears, a nose, and two empty holes for eyes. God's honest truth, that is Tom's worst fear. To die and leave only a flat, hollowed-out version of Tom Riddle that no one will remember. That ain't gonna happen. No, sir. Tom hooks the pelt over his shoulder and stamps out his fire. He picks up his browning and hikes back up the hillside. In a shady pine grove on the other side of the ridge, his speckled she-mule lifts her head. Her ears prick forward. The burst of steam hangs in the air with a soft nicker. Shoot, Nagini. Tom slaps her neck fondly. He tightens up the buckle, securing the girth, allowing him a ghost of a smirk. It's a $200 day, after all and that ain't even accounting for the three beavers and the fox this morning. He slides into a pair of webbed snowshoes and clicks to Nagini, setting off for Bishop Creek. The day's catch dangles off his mule's pack like victory flags. Tom Riddle, trapper, wolfer, soon to be so much more. The valley has far less snow, and the terrain is flat and pitted. A great sweep of raw earth divots down along the middle fork of the Bishop Creek to the lowlands, like God's own hand had just swept the rock to the floor of Owens Valley. Under the tower and frown of the high Sierras, 
Cattle ranchers down here knocked out all the irrigation ditches the Numu built to keep the expanse green for the deer and elk. Jokes on those manifest destiny bastards. No irrigation, no grass, no cows. Which means all winter long, the ranchers pay the legacy family's criminal alfalfa prices. In town, they call them the Sacred 28, those ranching kingpins along the Owens River. Now, winter cloaks the valley in brown, with drifts of the last snowfall. And Bishop Creek? Well, it's more like a gray, shoddy scab. Tom rides down the main drag of clapboard hovels, long sand-blasted and sun-bleached for their scant 50 years in existence. The mud is untenable. Nagini's big hooves squelch through the best of it. Tom is tying his mule to the hitching post down by the marshal's office just as the last of the magenta-soaked light fades and that vast, winking firmament spreads over the valley like a jeweled blanket. Across the street, orange light melts out of the creaking doorway of the First Baptist Church. Streams of do-goody brothers and sisters fill out into the snowy night with cordial goodbyes. Hats and scarves whipping in the wind, snow munching under their too happy boots. Mingled smells of hot dishes trail behind them, and Tom remembers with a metallic grind of his stomach that he had only a bite of stale biscuit soaked in drippings. Not like Tom would take a lick from those snake handlers anyhow. There's a lantern in the marshal office window, but the minute Tom steps inside, he's greeted with a wall of ice. He tromps his heavy boots across the rickety wood floor, watching the black lump heaped behind a desk. A pair of beady eyes lift from the stacks of handbills and ledgers. Now then, Marshal, surely your superiors can afford to send you a little more pocket change for some coal, Tom says. The lawman lets a threadbare wool blanket around his shoulders slip back from his press cavalry uniform. His long, angular features pinch, and his monotone bass puffs from his lips with traces of heat. Tell me you brought the McDee wolf and not a fragment of some miserable animal, the other half of which you presented for another bounty elsewhere. Tom throws down the stiffened hide onto the desk, its furry gray length covering the entire surface. That's him, Tom says. Nose to blame an asshole. Snape runs a gloved hand against McNee's long, glossy guard hairs, exposing the downy white fluff against the skin. A fine specimen, the marshal admits. He stands, slow enough to give Tom the idea that sitting behind a desk in the cold might be Tom's second worst nightmare. The floorboards measure Snape's unhurried crossing with low groans. He stoops over a cast iron safe and grinds out the combination. Regretfully, Snape draws. Your payment will be in part until the coach from Carson City arrives. Tom tightens his jaw. An itch crawls across his skin. His leather gloves stretch around his knuckles with an audible creaking, anger. And if I refuse to accept partial payment? Snape stands, pivoting on the heel of his boot, his sooty fringe of hair splashing against his gaunt cheekbones. As you said, he holds out a pile of tens and fives amounting to fifty dollars. Were I afforded more money, I would have coal. Tom hisses and snatches the fifty dollars. As he storms out, the marshal drones after him. The coach arrives next Thursday, God willing. The cold bites Tom's face as he slams the door behind him.
Dusk has poured into town like a pitcher of navy ink, the buildings too close together to allow a drop of moonlight into the street. The moon herself hangs low like a pale fingernail above the jagged black silhouettes known by day as the White Mountains. Eleven days in this clapboard shithole. Fucking blame it. She clutches the book closer to her chest, gripping the lapels of her wool cape closed in a clandestine fist. Oh heaven, there's no way she can bring it home. Not with father's scrupulous eye. Her boots crunch quietly along the frozen mud. She doesn't dare announce her steps on the echoey platform of the boardwalk. Ms. McGonagall slipped the book to her just after the potluck. She grasped Hermione's arm and took her to the linen closet for more dish towels, she said to the others. When they stood in the heathered dark, she handed Hermione a small, dusty volume wrapped in a yellowed scrap of cambric. Don't be afraid. The Lord judges the heart, dear. Relief spins in her head. McGonagall won't tell. It's clear the kindly spinster knows something about what she saw last week. Hermione doesn't even understand what it is, but it keeps happening to her. And eventually, someone less understanding will notice. But Hermione can fix it. She can pray more. Pray for the missionaries sailing across the Pacific and for the wicked miners down in Lone Pine. Pray for the Weasley children and for their poor mother with the consumption. Pray for the potters and for their father given over to worldly company and drink. She's prayed and cried and felt her chest lurch like a fish on a line every time the tent meeting comes to the call for confession and repentance. She's crawled to the altar, tears plinking in the dust, not caring if her gingham smudges in the bare soil. Oh God, please, Lord, let this cup pass from me. Father told her to stop giving in to her feminine passions. Taint proper for the preacher's daughter to have an apoplexy every Sunday. He'd grip the back of her neck and make hideous gnashing sounds the congregation would never hear from that pious mouth. Sometimes he whipped her with his belt. Hermione keeps her petticoats clean now. She's old enough to pin her hair into a neat chignon atop her head and sit straighter on the pew for her whalebone corset. She keeps silent in church as the Apostle Paul mandates, her eyes locked on her father, her heart murmuring a steady confession as his voice rises and falls, his face reddening, his lips spraying with flecks of spittle. Father preaches about the wrath of God being revealed against all godlessness of people who suppress the truth because of their wickedness, since what may be known about God has been made plain since the creation of the world. That's what Romans 1 says. Look it up. But Hermione has begged God to make the truth plain to her. Why, Lord? Why have you cursed me? She's desperate, and she'll even read Ms. McGonagall's evil papist book for some shred of hope. Hermione's breath steams in billowing clouds, barely visible in the shadowy street. Most folks from First Baptist live in fine houses on the good side of town or arrive from their ranches in little wagons in the spring and sledges in the winter. Hermione and her father rent a little cottage out behind the mill on the industrial end of town, not far from the church. She cuts across the muddy road towards Line Street when it happens. Hermione meets the warm breath of a man, 
his broad and breathing flesh of which a girl like her would not come within the Christ-fearing yard. The collision is quick, like a bullet sinking into muscle, meeting its mark. She doesn't have a chance to yelp or say oof like another girl would. Hermione isn't like them, not at all. The impact is like the surface of a frozen lake collapsing inward on itself. Her good, Christian facade crumbles, and the deep comes roaring out, juddering in a powerful ripple of pure energy. Droplets of light shatter from the tips of her fingers, illuminating the street in a brief flash. One moment, she smells saddle and horse lather, gristle and pine, and in the next, the male body flings backward into the snowdrift beside them. Panic seizes her. Hermione runs, her footsteps sinking into the muddy snow like a nightmare. She darts down the alley behind Lime Street, her skirt swirling about her ankles, the wind ripping frightened tears out of her eyes. There's a shuffle behind her, then the smooth, marching crunch of boots that needn't even break a run before overtaking her. A grip like a bear trap closes around her arm and she jerks backward. Hermione collapses against the cold wall of Brown's machine shed. She squirms against her assailant, the iron bar of an arm pinning her to the cedar planks. Let me go! The reply startles her, and she stops fighting at the sound. It's a youthful voice, but deep and lilting with southern sweetness like the tempting glow of Kentucky bourbon. She can hardly register that he's angry. What the blaming hell are you doing letting off like that? It's nothing, Hermione struggles again. A trick of the light. In the darkness, the misty puffs of his laugh catches the moonlight, though his face remains in shadow. She becomes aware of broad, lean shoulders, clad in a mackinaw and a wide-brimmed hat. Don't you know what people around here will do to a girl like you? Hermione wills herself to disappear into the wall of the machine shed, her heart thrashing in her ribcage like a snared hare. I don't know how it started, but I'll just stop. I won't do it again. The looming figure eases his grip some. And do you reckon, he says, given your past instances that simply putting your mind to it will work? She swallows like pushing a big, flopping trout down her throat. I don't know, she says, deflating. The towering shoulders ease, the hat tips to one side. And what exactly do you know? I can make things move without touching them, she says, her voice wavering like a confession at the altar. I can make animals do what I want them to do without training them. I can make bad things happen to people who annoy me. I can make them hurt if I want to. Fat tears tremble at the brink of her eyes, and she blinks, spilling them down her cheeks. She's dead. The stranger will turn her in, and her father will belt her until her blood runs around her ankles, until the buckle meets bone. The man reaches into his jacket. He speaks, soft and resonant, like God commanding the heavens and earth. Her soul is formless, hovering over the deep. He says, Lumos, and there's light.